If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. Today, I'm sitting down with Leanne Shared, who's joining me on the podcast today. Um, You guys are so lucky you get a treat. It's Leanne and Leanne. So Leanne's going to be talking about telepractice, the fundamentals and advantages. Leanne founded a teletherapy private practice. So she's coming on to talk a little bit about that, about starting that company, um, the idea behind it, how it's working out, and she's sharing with us the things that they've learned along the way, like navigating telepractice guidelines, talking about state licensure, um, HIPAA compliance, insurance considerations, documentation considerations, um, thinking about the appropriate populations uh, for telepractice, and then, of course, the good parts, like the benefits, um, why telepractice could be a great solution in targeting functional goals, working alongside caregivers. Um, it's just a little snippet of what Leanne's going to go over with us today. So yeah, I'm really excited. This was a really fun chat, and I'm super happy to share it with you guys. My name is Leanne Porter. I'm the host of the Speech Uncensored podcast, and now let's hear a little bit more from Leanne and Leanne. Welcome, Leanne Sherrod, to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you today. Thank you. So happy to be chatting with someone who has such a brilliant name as well, Leanne. <laughs> well, Leanne, I just cannot like tell you what a treasure and what a treat it is. Like I'm thrilled. <laughs> Leanne, such an honor. Such an honor. <laughs> Oh, man, I love it. Like, Leanne's, we got to band together. We got to, like, yeah, have each other's backs. So if you haven't nauseated anyone enough, like, just wait. I'm sure we'll say our names, like, 10 more times. Yes, easily. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, to, we are joining together today to talk about telepractice and diving in a little bit deeper into um, things we should know and then, like, seeing the benefits of telepractice. Like, it was really forced on a lot of people unexpectedly um, in a time of high stress and high tension. So it, you know, doesn't have maybe the best perception out there. So we're here to talk a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of it and some positive aspects of it. So Leanne, I'm so excited. Um, Tell me a little bit more about you. Yeah, I'm excited too. I hope that if anyone who's at the top of this is feeling like that way you described, like negatively about telepractice, that we can change your mind. Um, so I'm I'm Leanne. <laughs> I am a telepractitioner. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a telepractitioner, and I'm I myself and some colleagues have a practice that we founded that's telepractice only. I got my undergraduate degree in speech, went straight to get my master's at Northwestern, so booked it as fast as I could to the finish line to be to be a fully certified therapist. Most of my experience um, previous to delving into telepractice was in the realm of pediatrics, um, from an outpatient clinic, 
I started in early intervention in Chicago and then um, outpatient clinic here in, in Texas. I did some contract work for that clinic paired with the school where I was helping with their evaluations and IEP meetings. They they call them ARD meetings down here in Texas. Um, and then back into the realm of home health because I kind of missed it. I missed really getting that high level of engagement with families and caregivers and really being able to see the impact versus just kind of seeing kids in the clinic and then saying goodbye to them um, the rest of the week. So I decided to kind of delve into telepractice originally because all of those different settings to me felt like they had pain points and the pain points were different across those settings, but they were still there. So resources are tight in schools, caseloads are huge. You can't engage with parents the way that would would be ideal. Um, and then when you look on the, the insurance side of things, just constantly being stymied by a new hoop to jump through, a new way they want you to write their goals. This kid is one point above the standard score range, so we're gonna deny him. Okay, we have to appeal. Okay, peer review. And I just wanted to do therapy. <laughs> so um, looking to telepractice, uh, there's some really great benefits that we get from it and what kind of engagement we're able to achieve, reaching people in their natural environments most of the time. So um, that's really where, where we come at it from and what hopefully I can share with some others about how to kind of take anything that you might view as being um, maybe, you know, losing something from telepractice and really viewing it, like you said, at the top as something, things that we can gain. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Good. All right. So just to make sure I've got my ducks in a row, you are practicing out of the state of Texas. Yeah, I actually have, I have Texas licensure, California, and then Florida, Florida, and we can get into this, but Florida has a lovely law they passed in 2019, where you can super quick and easily and for free become a registered telehealth provider in Florida. Um, it's not the same as full-blown licensure in Florida, so you couldn't then drive to Florida and practice with someone. It's only a telehealth provision. But if you ask me, I kind of feel like every state should be putting out laws like that. It is very handy. And it, it's pretty just contingent on if you have good standing licensure in another state and thus qualify for licensure in the state of Florida. But you just don't have to go go through as much rigmarole to get it. Nice. That's yeah. awesome. And I love how you pitched the three most populous states. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, We're not California, New York or Illinois or anything like that, but like New York Florida, Texas, yeah. California, like boom, boom, boom. Yeah, yeah, we were, yeah, with the company, we were really looking to leverage like, okay, let's test this in the biggest markets we can find. New York is is next up on the docket. Nice. And it's also awesome to hear that Florida has that like telepractice provisional license. That makes it Amazing. That's yeah, that's so handy because going through the process of getting fully licensed in each state can be very time consuming. So like kudos to the state for figuring out that because we're licensed in other states, it really is just as good as being licensed in your state. Yeah, yeah. It's um I really feel like a lot of states should and very well might start looking at that. I mean, maybe when we, you know, things were put into emergency state here. 
um, Asha, I included the, the link for us there. Asha put out a, a pretty nice resource uh, across each state, um, specifically with the pandemic. Does a state have telehealth laws? Is there any kind of an emergency provision happening right now? But then past that, um, you know, looking towards the future, I think states are going to when they have a chance to breathe, maybe buckle down and look at look at those laws again. And hopefully we can kind of help lobby for that because I think we could all see the, the benefits of that. Um, the other thing that ASHA has going on that you can keep track of is the Interstate Compact, which is an effort to get an agreement between states basically for reciprocity of licensure. And I believe they need 10 states to sign on to sign it and, and enact it in order for it to kick off for those 10. Um, but you can kind of keep track. Asha has a map as well that you can kind of watch and see. And, and if you want to jump in and be a part of it, try to help uh, contact your state government to say, hey, that would be awesome if you guys could push that through. Leanne, I love that. That is so good. That's so important. Um, Whenever I decide to brace myself and jump into social media, you know, I see a lot of flack about, ooh, what does Asha do for us? And things like this is what Asha is doing for us, things that would really help us um, provide more services to more people and not have us to jump through so many hoops. So that would be huge. Yeah, we got to get more involved in that. And I'm sure everyone who's listening is like, cool, Leanne, one more thing. <laughs> yeah, I know. One more thing to do. I know. It's one of those things, like, even if we can have like a templatized email that we can blast people with, <laughs> we could yeah. shoot those out there. <laughs> true story. True story. All right, cool. All right. Well, Leanne, are we ready to um, jump into our first topic where yeah. we're going to navigate some telepractice guidelines and start off with um, the foundation? What's going to be HIPAA compliant? What's going to keep us within practicing <laughs> within our regulations and is going to keep us out of the fraud zone? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I guess since we were just on it, it's good to start with the licensure. Um, everything as a rule of thumb, you know, you have to be licensed in the state that you live in, as well as the state that the person you're providing for lives in. And that matters just the same way with telepractice. Um, sort of, again, if we're thinking about it, a bit outdated, if the fact that we have telepractice, we could leverage it across the country. Um, but the way it is right now, that's something that's really important to be aware of. So if you get contacted by someone who lives in a state other than the one that you're licensed in, you technically can't provide for them on a regular basis. Um, certain states have, again, like reciprocity conditions within limits. So um, I believe like Utah, for instance, is one if the person is there for less than 30 days or some some of the laws are like that, they're based on the timeline. Some of them are based on the number of sessions, perhaps 10 sessions or less. For instance, if your client was on vacation, um, then it's allowed as long, again, as you have your good standing licensure and would qualify in that state for licensure. So um, it's one of those things that's just really important to check on and to consider because if you accidentally slipped up, then you could be, um, you know, dinged on your license for practicing without a license in that state. Um, 
And so ASHA has, has again, that resource. They have it pretty nicely laid out. Uh, the wording is not always super clear when you go to each of these individual states' websites. And my advice would be if you have a question, if you're not sure, just reach out to that state. Uh, reach out to ASHA and reach out to that state. They might take a little bit to get back to you, but it's better to do your due diligence than be sorry later. Um, Take advantage, I guess, of the ones that do have the reciprocity, like Florida, if you are looking to get into telepractice and want to potentially be a far-flung provider, um, you could take advantage of all those things. Uh, same thing as well with regular licensure. If you have, if you get that license in that state, you got to maintain it just the same. So CEUs, checking in, when when is the licensure expiring, making sure you stay on top of all of that. So that's really not too different from if you're, you know, doing therapy in person. The same laws pretty much apply. And then I guess moving to the next most important point in my view is, is the HIPAA compliance. So obviously we're looking at providing services online and remotely, which means that your communication is going to be remote and it's something you have to pay attention to. And the, the video sessions themselves should be HIPAA compliant, in my opinion. So there's been a lot of things out there recently with when everyone was forced to make the switch, therapists were not sure. I know what platform to go to. Some schools were saying, use this platform. And we were shrugging saying, am I allowed to even do that? Does the school even know if I'm allowed to do that? Should I be abiding by FERPA first, HIPAA first, which one trumps? Um, so there's a lot to consider there. I, I'm personally of the opinion that HIPAA compliance should, should be, you know, paramount to, to everything. So it's it's one of those things that's going to be hard to walk back retroactively if we let it slip out now. I mean, I know the circumstances are all over the place and they felt very crazy. Um, and so we were doing what we felt like we had to do in order to keep those clients in receiving services, keep those students receiving services. But I guess the fact of the matter is there are platforms out there that are HIPAA compliant. And so if we have the choice, I would recommend making the choice to, to put the work in, especially if you want to set yourself up for long-term success. If you think that telepractice is something that you could be sticking with, just best to get all your ducks in a row and be HIPAA compliant from the start. So there are some of those basic business-centric platforms that function well and have some bells and whistles and some features like screen sharing and remote access. Um, some of those would be Zoom, Doxy.me, G Suite. And some of those you can sign a BAA with them and basically have, be, have a HIPAA compliant version. Like Zoom has a paid version that is HIPAA compliant once you sign that BAA. And what does the BAA stand for for people? Gosh, who don't know it? it's one of those ones that I actually know what the acronym stands for. I know that it's like it's like a business agreement. I'm missing the second A, but it's basically an agreement where, um, in a way, it's sort of like they're accepting the liability if if something does occur. 
If um, there is some kind of breach of security, yeah. they assume the responsibility rather than you. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can, you can sign those and, um, be providing through zoom. That's what our company has. Um, zoom. I mean, to me, zoom is one of the best functioning video platforms out there. It's just kind of like at the top of the game, as far as like video and audio quality goes, user friendliness. And I think that there's a lot to be said for the fact that many, many people now know how to use zoom. So a lot of your clients will know how to use zoom. And I think that goes a long way for having clients that stick with you, find it easy to meet with you because if it's hard, they're going to (laughs) bail. They're going to either say, I'm going to find someone else, or I'm just not going to bother doing this. Um, And then some of the other platforms are provider centric. And so those ones, they're usually all paid, you know, they're not free versions, but they off the bat are HIPAA compliant and they have a lot of features that, speak to that as well. So they have maybe HIPAA compliant, like secure messaging so that you can communicate. Um, because, you know, email, unless you have an encrypted email will not be HIPAA compliant. Um, so ones like simple practice, Thera platform blink, those ones have a lot of built-in features meant for providers. So note templates, consent forms already loaded in there that you can just leverage for your practice. Um, Invoicing, some of them even have like ways to help you do insurance billing. And I believe I was just looking at it, simple practice. We don't, we don't do insurance billing, but um, some of them might have a feature where they take, take a tiny, tiny slice of the pie, like 25 cents per billing transaction for insurance. I'm not exactly positive about that one because we don't do it, but just looking into them, they have a lot of those features that are meant to make getting your, getting your practice going easier for providers. Um, and again, a lot of there's, I, I included a link. Some therapists have already done a lovely job of compiling all of those platforms And I'm a big fan of not reinventing the wheel. So someone already did that work. Thank you to that person for doing it. Um, And so that link is in there. You can take a look and it just makes all those comparisons for you so that you, it's kind of one of those things where you might have to weigh the pros and the cons and decide what's, what's going to be the best for you and what you're trying to achieve with your practice. Yeah. So it sounds like you just, if you're curious about it, just go and explore and play around and see with what you know and how you want to do your like private telepractice model is, does it work with what's being offered for each product? Mm-hmm. But I don't think you just got to do a little homework for it. It is. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's not for me to say like, this one's the best. You should do this one because it, it, people might have some different thoughts and opinions about it. Um, but like I said, the resources are already out there for you to review. So that's nice and handy. <laughs> Leanne, do you know if I just love saying that I'm like, this is so fun. Hey, Leanne. Okay. <laughs> do you know if, um, any of these companies do like trials or, um, I feel like there's a name for when they do like a walkthrough with you to like show you the features. Yeah. They have kind of thing? Yeah, they do. I know a lot of them do, especially the, 
the provider centric ones like Simple Practice and Thera Platform, they have help centers. I believe almost all of them have trial periods, like, you know, the first 30 days are free. Um, so definitely take advantage of that to kind of, like you said, play around, actually interact with the features, actually see. Um, I would recommend, you know, getting a friend, maybe even, or a spouse to get on a computer in the other room and do a fake call, see what the video and audio quality is like. If you have a friend who maybe, um, you know, test it out to see if it is going to go smoothly on a tablet or a phone, if your client is trying to access it that way as well. So really put it to the test. Yeah, love that. That is super important. And I think a real key part, if you're trying to make a decision, like play around with it. Don't just read reviews or see what other people think, like get in there, get your hands on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Okay. Anything um, more for HIPAA or are we ready for the next one? Well, let's see. I think the only other thing I was going to maybe touch on, and again, this is something that's dependent on what type of practice people are looking to do. I can speak to our practice. We're an out-of-pocket provider. So like I said, we don't do any insurance billing. And something that we had to be really aware of um, that I previously was not aware of as a predominantly pediatric therapist was uh, a Medicare if you talk, delving into the world of insurance, if you have someone reach out and they are a Medicare beneficiary and you are operating a private practice where you do out of pocket fees, you cannot provide for that person because it's a service that they could otherwise leverage from Medicare. So that's just something I felt it was important to kind of point out. Um, obviously, every other plan is going to have their their different things you have to do to get in network with them. Um, I, you know, so I think that that one just stood out to me because setting up a private practice, it it can be maybe one of the easiest, one of the easier points of entry to do it out of pocket and then maybe build yourself into networks. Um, but looking at that Medicare provision, because especially when the pandemic hit, obviously people were looking for ways to access care. Telepractice is right there. It sounds great, but we had to pump the brakes because that's still an important role. Um, there's no longer a Medicare cap, but um, if they have a replacement plan, you can provide for them a Medicare replacement plan. If they have a Medicare supplement or traditional Medicare AMB, you can't charge them out of pocket for that. So I wanted to point that out because that was something we specifically came up against. Yeah, that is really, really important. Um, you have to be registered with Medicare to provide therapy for anyone on a Medicare plan. You said except for the replacement plan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No private pay with basically, is that essentially anyone over like the age of 65 or something like that? Yeah. So if someone's over 65, definitely check with them. Um, and they obviously they qualify for it uh, if they paid into their social security and everything. But in some cases, they might get that replacement plan where they pay, you know, additional premiums to have a replacement plan. Um, but yeah, pretty, pretty much anyone over 65, it's important to verify with them. All right. Very good. 
Okay. Any other types of insurance things we need to be aware of? You know, I think that <laughs> maybe I'm maybe I'm not the best expert to talk too much further about it outside of the private practice um, and the out of pocket service, just because we we have not delved into that. And I could talk about why we didn't delve into that. It's because it's such a tangly mess, and we felt like there was a lot that we could accomplish by cutting out that middleman by not kind of jumping through those specific hoops by going direct to the consumer. Um, At first we were testing a theory about whether or not the demand would be there. And we found that it very much is. There are people that fall into that donut hole where they either don't qualify for Medicaid, Medicare, and they can't afford to pay for a nice plan that will give them lots of good benefits. They fall into the donut hole where speech is left out of the loop. And so either, you know, their co-pays might be just as much as our regular session fees are, and they can just conveniently do our sessions at home. Um, so they might say, yeah, I'll, I'll pay the extra $10 per session to work with you guys. Um, so there's a, there's a whole lot of reasons why we didn't, we didn't get into it. I think, (laughs) <laughs> my my words are maybe to those of you who are getting into it, kudos, hats off, um, tip of the hat, because it, it it's complicated and there's a lot of um, boxes to check. Now, we talked about how there are um, kind of obstacles to providing services for adults who have Medicare plans. What about children with Medicaid plans? Is there the same kind of limitations there where their parents... I guess if they qualified for Medicaid, they likely wouldn't have the resources to pay out of pocket. But have you ever experienced anyone in that situation come to you? Um, not no, I don't think we've seen anyone go like through to fruition. We've definitely have pe- people reach out to us and um ask if we accept it and yeah, when we say no, we're just out of pocket, then they typically are looking for um, a provider that can be a network for Medicaid, which makes total sense. And I, I want that to be there for them, obviously. Um, so yeah, and that's the case too. Uh, briefly, when the pandemic happened, like Medicaid, a lot of the different state Medicaid plans made the switch to allow for telepractice, but it still had to be with your in-network provider. You couldn't just go see anyone and have it be paid for by Medicaid. Same thing with Medicare. They made an emergency provision for your Medicare provider to do telepractice with you. But again, it still had to be a Medicare provider, not just any willy-nilly, um, <laughs> any willy-nilly clinician like me. No, <laughs> um, any out-of-network clinician. Right. Okay. Excellent. Good. All right. So Um, Are we ready to talk about um, identifying appropriate populations for telepractice? Yeah, definitely. So I think it's really important to point out that telepractice, ASHA has it approved as a delivery model since 2005. So which, you know, it doesn't sound like that long ago, but it's 15 years ago at this point. So teenager um, right there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I was listening to fallout boy back then. (laughs) Um, So more and more research though, has come out in the, in the past couple of years to point towards the fact that telepractice is a really valid and effective delivery method for 
a big majority of the populations. What I'd point out is that some populations, the verdict is still out. You know how we love to read at the end of those research papers, more evident, more research is needed to make a definitive um, call. But I mean, the fact of the matter is that the research maybe is still out for certain groups. And so I think it's fair to approach your caseload with careful consideration, the same way that all of us typically are evaluating each case, whether we're a good fit for that, whether we, you know, yes, it's within the scope of our practice, but is there another uh, referral that we could be making to help that person maximize their outcomes, someone with more experience? Same kind of thing we want to consider. Is this is this an effective delivery model for this person? Um, if we feel challenged in the, in the beginning, we can make adjustments, but there, there very well might be a point where we, we might look at it and say, this is probably not the best thing for this patient and we should refer them elsewhere. I think at this point in time, I would say that it kind of, in my opinion, it, it's sort of worth a shot with every person at this stage because telepractice is kind of the safest option that they might have right now um, instead of going into a clinic. So whether they're geographically distant from the clinic or the hospital or um, constrained by scheduling, if parents have a, a very busy job, two different jobs, or maybe in some cases, maybe they're an adult who is looking for some level of privacy that comes along with doing telepractice for certain disorders that might not, might be hard to find a, a location that will provide for them. I'm thinking specifically of adults who stutter. Maybe, you know, the type of clinic they would go to might be like an outpatient clinic that might predominantly serve pediatrics and how do they feel about that? Might they enjoy it more if they could just access their session from home? So we do a consultation before we start someone off in telepractice. I find that to be a very valuable piece to do. Um, it gives you an idea of whether or not you think it's going to be a viable model before you charge that evaluation fee. And you know, it can it can also help. Well, it can help you prepare for your evaluation as well. Right. If you take a chance to kind of chat. Of course, that's you know, that's a part of our model that deciding how it works for you, if, if that is able to be a part of your model as well. Um, we find it really valuable. Like I said, I think it's worth giving a lot of cases a shot. Some of the groups that might be trickier to work with are dysphagia, right? So ASHA has it out there that dysphagia treatment can be done over telepractice, but at what point do we maybe want to jump in and do that? Is in the very early stages of working on something? Maybe not. Maybe it's a better fit for clients who are working more on the upkeep maintenance end of things where they have seen a clinician in the hospital, they've gotten a, a swallow study, those results could be shared with you as their new telepractice clinician, and you can help keep a visible eye on all of those things with caregiver involvement, parent involvement. Um, so obviously when we think about populations, the first thing we're probably thinking of is the, the ones who need a lot of tactile 
cueing, whether it's um, maybe that dysphagia or autism spectrum, if we need a lot of sensory input. And so, again, I think giving them a fair shot, we then would turn towards what what adjustments can we make to make the most out of the telepractice? And that's sort of jumping into the next topic a little preemptively. But um, I think making recommendations the same way that you would for an in-person session. Um, so setting expectations up front is valuable. Parents and caregivers should expect progress and outcomes from telepractice the same way that they should expect it from in-person. But they might come to telepractice with a preconceived notion that it won't work. And so they, in a way, kind of getting it out there up front might help prevent them being quick to the draw to fire you um, just because of that that preconceived notion. If, if, if you were making the same progress with them, the same slow progress with them in person, they, they might give you a longer road, longer rope before they pull the plug. Um, so I think that setting expectations up front, we know all the same things are going to affect our progress, client motivation, parent involvement, carry over to maximize the outcomes. Um, if you think you have a client who might need more parent involvement in what you're doing. So if you're working with a kiddo or, um, even an adult who, who is on the autism spectrum and you're feeling like, well, we might need to do a lot more prior to the session start to have that session be fruitful, try to monitor and make those nimble changes. Send some resources so that parents and caregivers can go through a sensory diet before the session starts. So I think for me, my advice is staying, staying pretty on top of your monitoring for progress. Uh, I think it's easy to, to get complacent sometimes with checking in on those things. You know, you're going through your daily session, you're doing all the same thing, you're taking your data, but looking across your past couple of weeks of data to see if you're really making substantial changes. Maybe you're doing that a little bit more frequently um, off the bat in your telepractice because um, we need to be on top of those in order for the, the families to feel like change is happening. So some changes that I would suggest looking at and that I've gone through, do you need to involve parents more? Can we encourage more carryover and how um, looking for opportunities for parents to kind of ask for non-contingent help giving, which is just the idea that you're taking them through a daily routine in their home through telepractice and they have a moment where they're the ones reaching out to you for help. So kind of um, it's going to sink in more if they ask you what what could I do there to help make that moment better? they're going to sponge it up a lot more than if you're just kind of throwing it at them oh, all day long. Yeah. Yes. Ooh, I like that, that concept and that idea. That is so true. Um, Leanne, if I can interrupt your flow real yeah, quick and yeah. ask you a question about documentation, because, you know, I feel like when we have to submit to insurance, they, our documentation is built around what they want to see a lot of times. So how is your level of documenting any, is it any different than maybe what you would do if you did have to submit for insurance repayment and things like that? Um, is it the same amount of burden or not? 
Like I'm curious. Yeah. So I think it's, I think it's pretty similar. So you're still going to do a daily note. And for us, we still are writing standardized, smart goals, not only for the sake of us tracking, if they had to go to another clinician, if they're being submitted to insurance, having those standardized goals that insurance is looking for, for everything to be measurable and attainable and, you know, timely, all of that good stuff. And proving and including that language in there that shows that it's a a medical necessity for the client to be receiving those services. That's very much how we approach our practice, even though, uh, even though we technically don't have to, because we're not billing that way. um, I think that, I think that the burden of getting those services approved is, is probably about the same. And I think that I think that we would be smart to kind of keep it as much the same as we can to prove that, to continue proving to insurance and to the field, to our clients that telepractice is valid and is effective to have the data to back it up. I think that our, our documentation should be on, at, at the same quality. Um, I don't think that it's more burdensome. I don't think. Um, still, yeah, still writing a report, still doing daily notes and progress notes, but. Okay. So then my follow-up to that is you mentioned, um, something along the lines of like, you know, when you create your eval notes and your progress notes, um, do you provide those to the families who may then want to try to get reimbursement from their private insurance plans? Like, is that, does, how often does that happen? Yeah, we, yeah, we definitely do. And it's not, it's not too time consuming of a process, right? Because a lot of these things, like we talked about earlier, a lot of these platforms have the built-in note templates. For instance, we do our documenting on simple practice. So we fill in the note, we save it and lock it, and then you can shoot it off real fast in an email in that client's chart. So that's pretty handy as far as looking at the reimbursement. And then same thing, some of those platforms will have super bill templates or ASHA has just a, a regular old super bill template where you would just want to make sure you're specifying the correct code. And I believe the most po- the most popular, most frequently used um, modifier on the end of like the treatment codes, like if you're doing 92507 is .95. So that synchronous teletherapy delivery. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that, that comes into the documentation side, as far as running, if you're running a practice that taking the time to do that billing, if you're using some of these platforms, they make it pretty easy, but we definitely have clients that ask for those to be sent over so that they can request reimbursement. Um, I don't really have big data on how often they're being accepted, to be honest. Um, I think, that is liable to change maybe because some of the plans might be accepting them now, but might cut that off once the pandemic's more under control. Same thing with, you know, Medicare making allowances for telehealth right now, but yeah, that would be really unfortunate because telehealth could be super helpful moving forward where people don't have to get stuck in traffic and commute and, 
Service delivery in the home setting, I think, even if it's telepractice, I think is a lot more helpful than at a facility. Um, An outpatient working with adults myself, I feel like I'm always asking and trying to make that connection of what we do in the therapy session to their daily life and their home life. And working with a patient and their spouse one day, the spouse was like, can you just come home with us? Like that would just be easier, right? (laughs) Because we want to make those modifications to their daily life where they're seeing improvement in their communication or their cognition or their swallowing. And we need to know what potential obstacles are in their home environment that would be limiting that and problem solve and create solutions and compensatory strategies that are effective. And this, them coming in and seeing me and talking about it and giving them tools and then them going home and trying them out and then reporting back, were they successful or not? And then like, it would be so much more faster if I had access, right? And I think person is great, but also if they could just turn the camera around and show me what their pill setup is like, for example, you know, then I would just be able to see and be like, oh, okay, well, when you described it, you didn't really tell me about XYZ, but I can see that now. Here's a better recommendation, you know? Right. Yeah. I think coming to them in their natural environments uh, and at convenient hours too, right? So different, you know, it's easier to access. I think it's a huge, huge benefit of overcoming some of those, some of the guesswork of how everything is actually generalizing for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, right? True, true. Okay, cool. All right. Well, thanks for letting me go down that little tangent with you. <laughs> you kind of broke me out of a tangent, so it was all good. <laughs> okay. Our tangent took a tangent, which is yeah. now going to take us back to our two Leanne, Leanne's having tangents. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> all right. Um, Okay. Was there anything else you wanted to cover for kind of identifying those uh, populations who might be very successful on telepractice, um, making appropriate adjustments if it's not being conducive to them before we move into um, the, like, setting aside the fears people might have about what they might lose if they do telepractice versus um, in-person services. What are you ready for? Yeah, I think I would kind of segue them together. So all the population, you know, a bunch of populations, they work great. You'll find it. It works great. Early intervention. It works great. You have a built-in, um, parent coaching out of necessity. The parents have to be the ones trying out those language strategies and early intervention. Arctic and language, you can be sharing up visual cues, sharing up games on your screen, keeping them motivated with through technology. It works great. <laughs> um, some of what I think we'll lead into in the next segment here is more of the parent and caregiver involvement. So I think if you're if we're ever feeling like we're coming up against it in telepractice, and being challenged to make it work for that population. I think taking a step back and like we just said, seeing how it works in their daily life, getting the parents involved so that they can then practice in their daily life is gonna just boost your outcomes. The families are gonna see the actual improvements. It's so easy to have a have a session and say, oh, they got 80% of them right of the the random words that I had them practice. 
what about the words that they're saying around their house? Did the parent hear them say those right? Well, maybe loop the parent into the next session, create a list altogether of words that you see in their playroom that involve their target sound. Really try to fit it in to, to make the most of it and to keep the parents motivated to continue through telepractice, the kids motivated to continue through telepractice with some of those um, rewarding features. I was going to comment like virtual, there's a lot of motivating things that we can get from telepractice that are surprisingly simple. So the games, like we said, some of that the applications have remote access where the kids can actually be the ones manipulating the games or the boom cards or um, the virtual backgrounds are really, I think, something everyone's really excited about because it's not only really fun for the kids and they're excited about it, but it's also a language building opportunity talking about not just being in your in your room, your office, but being in space, being in the jungle. Um, so those are, those are really fun as well. Yeah. I got to interview, um, an SLP up in Boston named Amy McGuire for the talking teletherapy podcast that speech therapy PD is doing. And she works with adults, mostly, um, neuro oncology patients, and she does telepractice and, um, her facility was actually moving towards that direction before the pandemic. So they already had a lot of stuff in place and were able to pretty seamlessly segue into continuing to provide um, teletherapy for more patient populations. So um, she talked about, you know, when we work with adults and especially our adults with cognition deficits, we might be concerned, like, would they even be able to use the medium, like log on, like access it? And so she talked about, addressing some of her goals with her patient by like the simple act of getting the patient through the steps, sequencing the steps of logging on to Zoom, for example, onto the platform. Right. And so they were targeting goals like by doing teletherapy, you know? And so like, it's really possible. And I just kind of wanted to like slide that idea in. So if people are listening and they're like, this just would not work with my older adults. Um, of course, it depends if they're on a Medicare plan or not. <laughs> but right. No, but that's life. brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's a brilliant point. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Back to you. Go ahead, Leanne. No, no, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Leanne. Um, no, that's a really, that's a really great point. Um, and so, yeah, I think spinning then to leveraging the benefits, there's one right there, kind of improving and think of everything else that older adults can access. I mean, everything's on the internet these days. So um, they could do even, maybe they would be up and ready to do some more general practitioner visits with their doctor if, if we help them figure out telehealth um, and keep them, get them up on their medications, not needing all of those other things to be relapsed on. Um, so with telepractice, like we said, oftentimes you're reaching Oftentimes, if not always, you're reaching the clients in their their most natural environment, which gives you the chance, like we said, to target really incredibly functional goals with objects and actions and routines that are already a part of their day. And so that is, I think, the biggest thing that I like to frame it around, just the whopping advantage that we get instead of seeing them in in a clinic, in the hospital, at school. So the best, and it's true, it's true for pediatrics and adults, for both, uh, for every population. 
And so we, we get the opportunity to work alongside the caregivers and the parents, the spouses. And when I begin with each client, like we said, setting expectations up front can be really crucial in order to make sure that that's going to be a success. I think it's something that's a little harder to walk backwards on if you start out the first couple sessions without a high level of parent or caregiver involvement. Um, and it's it's something that, again, there's some preconceived notions on. So a lot of people still have the notion of entering into a speech therapy interaction where, okay, I'm going to drop the kid off for 30 minutes and I'll come back. I'll pick them up in 30 minutes. Why? Come back. You're, you're the person who's going to talk to them the most. So how can we as therapists set that off on the right foot so that not only do they understand the importance of that, maybe just kind of briefly going through the evidence and research that we have to back that up. But the next thing I want to do is try to establish some really early success to that point, because even if you explain it to them up front, the buy-in might not be there. So looking at the daily routine, picking a very small piece of that routine Getting in the earliest session possible, the first one, the second one, a success, a win towards that goal, even if it's something really small, a small step that we can point out to them to say, look, oh my gosh, last week we couldn't do that at all. Now, you know, you you gave him that cue, mom, and he used two words together I didn't hear him do that at all last session. How wonderful. So, I mean, I'm sounding kind of robotic there, but I'm trying to exaggerate, really point it out to them that they did it. They helped make it happen. Look what a quick turnaround we had on that because you guys were able to practice that over the, the whole week, not just the 30 minutes that we were meeting together. Um, so I think that establishing that buy-in early on so they can see what an impact their involvement is having. When everything lives digitally too, it's a good idea to have, um, I would advise kind of compiling your resources and keeping them organized to really efficiently stay connected on that. So firing off quick resources for home practice. Um, a lot of families, they're busy. It's hard for them to get done. But some of your families really crave that practice. They they want to see the progress. They want their um, family member to improve or, you know, keep growing as fast as possible. So some of them will really be craving that. And it's kind of nice that everything lives digitally in terms of telepractice because you don't have you don't wind up with a stack of random handouts that <laughs> the kid crumples up. The, the flashcards that you laminated that somehow, you know, fall in the trash bin. <laughs> there's there's kind of no longer that, that excuse if everything can just be pulled up digitally again. So um, keeping those resources. What I like to do is have a really simple outline page that you can fill in for each session and send it to families ahead of time. Um, not that I don't do that necessarily for every session. I might do it more for one where um, I am trying to achieve a higher level of parent caregiver engagement. They might be more ready to do that with me if 
they have a better understanding of what we're trying to achieve in the session. So I can send an outline that maybe has an idea of some activities that we'll be doing together, what materials they might need to bring. And again, it's kind of putting, it's kind of putting a little bit of burden on them, reinforcing the concept that the speech therapist can't do it alone. And we won't, we're, we don't have magic wands. It's, it's a team effort. So they have to kind of maybe help bring us some materials it, whether it's um, a certain toy, maybe they need to come to that session ready with a specific food item, food consistency, um, whatever it is, planning ahead of time if you're going to work on chaining some foods together for a sensory feeding kiddo, being prepped ahead of time, having a little outline form that they can refer to. Um, and so and then including what your objective is going to be for that session. So here's what we can bring. Here's what we're working on. It's nice because if you fill that out, you've basically already planned your session, maybe in a quick five minute amount of time, which is nice. And you're going to give your your parent or caregiver a heads up of what they're what they should look forward to. And they might you might find I often find they come to the sessions more engaged and they have more questions, which is again, that non-contingent help giving. They're thinking actively about things and looking towards the next step, which is really impactful. Um, some kiddos might benefit from the same thing that we do in in-person sessions, a visual tracker, setting a goal to keep them engaged and involved. So um, whether you send a version of that to families to have with them in person, or you can pull that up on the screen for them to see. Um, and then I also, you know, it's, it's easier. I, I think it's easier sometimes for sessions to kind of go long in telehealth for something about it. Maybe it's kind of, cause it's kind of like talking on the phone, especially if you get to know the families really well. Um, which is nice because you're still making connections with them, even though you're not with them in person. Um, sometimes it might feel easy to kind of run over the session. So that's another thing I'd recommend setting expectations for upfront, um, giving kind of firm cutoff points for that. I know it's easier said than done. I'm not always very good about it, but um, yeah, I'm terrible at it at it in person. I would hate to see me on telepractice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I tend to, I tend to be a little better with it in telepractice than I was doing my home health visits. Um, home health visits, same thing, you know, cause you're there in, in their space. And it, it, as long as they keep engaging with you, you feel out of a polite necessity to kind of stick around and talk. Um, I think that same feeling is there for telehealth, but it's maybe a little bit easier to make that firm cutoff point because they can't, I mean, they don't really, they can't see what you've got going on. Oh, maybe I have, I have another session to get to. I would love to, to continue that question next, that next session. Um, I'm going to make a note to bring it back up for next week so we can get to that. Or again, depending on how you like to conduct your practice, maybe you're someone who feels okay with directing them to, to send you a secure message on the client portal um, and you can answer it within you know, however long you want to say. Um, but so I think that some of that just boundary setting is going to help keep everything really successful and help them know that you came to this session with an objective. We had an outline for it. Um, here's what's the home program. Let me know if you have questions we can bring up next session. So 
it it's it'll help keep things efficient. It'll help keep from derailing your whole schedule for the day. So um, I think taking advantage of the fact that you can maybe cut cut those off a little firmer will will ultimately pay dividends in the end for your productivity. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Leanne, we don't have much time left. So would you like to tell people um, how they can reach out to learn more? Yeah. Yeah. So um, feel free to contact us at Expressible. Um, you can reach out to info at expressible.io and can check out the website. We have um, blogs we put out and videos. I mean, I'm happy. Something we're really passionate about along the lines of caregiver involvement is um, producing content that is geared towards home exercises and like video specifically, where therapists feel feel free to, if you find any of our videos valuable, send them over to your families to help reinforce the concept that you're that you're trying to get them to work on. Um, so yeah, you can reach us. You can you can reach me at my email address too, which is just Leanne at expressible.io if it's a specific um, question. But um, other than that, yeah, <laughs> I think that's it. <laughs> Contact wise. <laughs> Well, excellent. Leanne, thank you so, so much for joining me on the podcast today to talk more about teletherapy and how you and your team are utilizing it as a private practice um, without going through insurance. Like, you know, it has some unique features about it. So, um, yeah, I really appreciate you sharing what you guys have learned and have experienced um, starting your private practice with teletherapy. It's really awesome. Thanks, Leanne. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at speechtherapypd.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 